Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, From the Depths of Darkness to the Light of Success. I am your host, Chris Swick, and on this podcast, we talk about mental health, addictions, ADHD, eating disorders, and really anything anyone's afraid to talk about, we talk about it on this show. Let's make people afraid to not talk about these things. But before we get going, I believe everyone's story is valuable at the end of the day. doesn't matter what walk of life you come from. You're all welcome on my platform. Head over to the YouTube channel, same name as the podcast, hit that subscribe button, turn on the notifications, head over to Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to the show, you can find it on those podcast platforms. And before we get going also, head over to the Instagram page, at Depths of Dark Side. If you ever need a hand or just need someone to chat to, hit me up in the DMs over there. But with no further ado, I'd love to introduce you to my next guest, former Marine, gold gloves boxer at Tim lodging on the show today you want to take it away and let them know a little bit about you absolutely first of all thanks for having me i really appreciate it it's a pleasure meeting you and uh, no i'll try to be pretty brief so you can ask me some questions but i grew up in a normal family pretty much my, my father was a police officer he retired after 37 years my mother actually uh, growing up she was a professional bodybuilder which is not common in the 80s for the women that's quite uh, a combo <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was actually one of the first women to be featured in a magazine back in the 80s. My whole side of my family, you know, my uncle was Mr. Universe for three years in a row in the 70s. My cousin was Mr. Marilyn. So I have a bodybuilding background on my father's side. Now, at the age of six, my father and mother got a divorce. So I primarily grew up with my mom and my older brother. And that I held on to that for a very long time up until my late thirties into in my early forties that I was the cause of the divorce that my brother's 10 years older than me. Why did he stick around till my brother was 17 and he left when I was seven? Was there something wrong with me? Did I get in between my mother and the father? So I held on that for a very long time. And my father, I'm not going to quote, he was a selfish asshole. And he wanted to do his own thing. And he would tell me he's coming to pick me up. I packed my bags and I'd wait at the front door. An hour would go by, then I'd get the phone call. Hey, I can't come and get you, bud. I got to work overtime. Something came up. And this went on months. It got to the point where my mom said my dad was coming to get me. And I just wouldn't even pack because I just didn't want to be disappointed. I can't tell you how many times I waited at the front door waiting for my father to come pick me up. So I held on to that for a very long time, thought that there was something wrong with me. Why didn't my father love me? Why didn't he want to ha have anything to do with me? And I believe that helped in my addiction process because I was trying to cope with that for a very long time. But my mother did a hell of a job. She worked two, three jobs. She put herself to college, got her master's degree, and ultimately became a vice president of this big company here in Maryland. and did very well for herself and was able to take care of me. My brother joined the army. He moved out at the age of 18 and pretty much never came back. He did 27 years in the army, so he was always away. So by the time I got into middle school, it was just me and my mom, and she had found my stepdad. So it was just me pretty much primarily growing up. I was an athlete. I played baseball, football. I was a golden glove boxer and junior Olympic boxer. And I also was almost a professional skateboarder. I grew up with Brandon Novak from Jackass and Viva La Bam and Bucky Lasik lived down the street. So I grew up with these guys and we skated all the time. So I had a very cool 
cool childhood growing up, being able to hang out with these guys. And you just put a smile on my face when you said Brandon Novak. I just listened to a cool episode with him, and like he's obviously clean and sober now too. But that was a wild man, <laughs> man. I, and I'll tell you my story. He's the one that got me into rehab. Oh wow. So, yeah, yeah. So he's been, we've been childhood friends. I've known him since elementary school. But yeah, I grew up pretty much wrong. I didn't touch drugs or alcohol at all. Ninth grade, we had this welcome to high school freshman party. And I went and I drank some alcohol and I got so sick. And the next morning after I grew up and I throwing up and hang over the whole deal. And my mom came and picked me up and she's drank last night, didn't you? I was like, yeah, she's, you're going to be sick all day long. And we were having this little cookout. So she's, your punishment is, I want you to shuck 50 years of corn. Here's a bag for the corn and here's a bag for you to throw up. She said, I'm not going to punish you because you're going to feel like hell for the rest of the day. And that's exactly what I did. And I didn't touch alcohol again until my senior year of high school. Now going into my senior year, I had signed up for the Marine Corps the summer before going into the senior year. So I already knew once I graduated, I was going to boot camp after I graduated. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to some parties and have some fun. And start hanging out with some people. And I started going to parties and I started to drink. And I think I started to drink just to fit in. And what I mean by that is I, I was a very popular guy in school. I had a lot of girlfriends. I, I didn't hang out with one group of people. I was, I, I knew pretty much everybody in senior class. I was voted best looking in senior year of high school. So I had a lot of friends or acquaintances, I should say. But I started going to parties just to have fun. And I started drinking. Drinking started, it led into smoking pot. And then that led into taking LSD and mushrooms. And believe it or not, in 94, PCP was around pretty heavy. So I started smoking some PCP when I could, when it was around. And I found pain pills to be enjoyable. So I was drinking, smoking pot, doing LSD, PCP. You got the cocktails going. Yeah. And pretty much once I got a couple of beers in me, whatever was around the party, I was like, yeah, I'll try it, whatever. Except for cocaine and heroin, because really it wasn't around the group of people that I was hanging out with. But like all the psychedelics and the kind of, I would say hippie drugs, rather, if you would. And then the PCP kind of, it felt, made me feel like freaking Superman. It was, in a, it was a crazy experience doing that. It was almost like taking LSD and, and cocaine at the same time. Because you felt superhuman, but you also were tripping a little bit. It was pretty intense. But for me, I was like, you know what? It's a phase. I'm going away in the Marine Corps. So let me get it all out. Let me have some fun. I graduated and I went to boot camp that summer. So the drugs stopped. Like immediately I had to pass drug tests. So I stopped like a month before I went into the Marine Corps. And I had no problem stopping the drugs. Now, once I graduated boot camp and got stationed in North Carolina, Camp Lejeune, as soon as we got off at four o'clock, 19, 20 year old kids. We left the base and went to the bars, went to the strip clubs, and the motto around the bases were, if you were old enough to take a bullet for this country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. So they would serve us, and their only stipulation was, don't stand there with a beer in your hand in case the police walk in. So we could drink our beer and set it down on the table and just stand next to it, just as long as we weren't caught actually holding it in our hand. But they had no problem serving us underage, and it was like a rite of passage, if you will. And we would see our sergeants out at these bars, and these are 30-year-old men. So we're looking up to these guys, and we're like, shit, if they're doing it, I guess this is what is, is expected of. We're Marines. We train hard. We should be able to party hard. And our sergeant would just be like, just make sure you're up at 3.30 to go running. Make sure you're able to do all your, all your, everything that you have to do for the day. And we have no problems with you guys going to the bars. 
Just don't get arrested. Don't get in fights. Now, we got in a lot of fights. Had to be taken, bringing, brought home onto the base by the MPs a couple times, but nothing out of the ordinary where we would be in some serious trouble. And 95, my unit got deployed to Somalia for Operation United Shield. And it was pretty much, it was a peacekeeping situation. We were there to police the area, keep peace, and help actually clean up and just get things back to normal. While I was there, I did see the ramifications of war. I saw death. I saw body parts. I saw blown up buildings. I saw everything that war does to humans, and which is... It's just not right. It's, it's a whole different experience of life. And when I got out of the Marines the next year, I was the first month I was, man, this is, I, I can, I can sleep in. I don't have to have my hair cut. I can just relax. And I moved back in my mom's house. I'm 20 years old. And the first month was great. It was like a decompression. I'm like, everything's over. I can relax. The second month I got the, oh shit factor, man, I got to get a job. I got to start paying rent. I got to get a vehicle. I got to figure out how to move out of my mom's house. I'm 20 years old. I shouldn't be living in my mom's house. I just served in the Marine Corps. That's my, that was my mindset at the time. The third month kicked in and I got severely depressed. I stopped showering. I stopped shaving. I didn't want to leave my bedroom. And I had started to drink more heavily. As soon as I got home, I was still drinking. And I remember my mom saying, wow, Tim, you drink a lot. I was like, well, mom, this is what we did in the Marines. Once we were done our thing, that's how we relaxed. She said, yeah, but you drink a lot. She said, and you cuss a lot too. I'm like, that's just, you know, how I am now. She's like, I don't, I sent you away as a confident, strong young man. And they sent me back a broken child. She said, you are not the same person. And I was just like, I don't know. Did that ring home to you? Really, it did, but it didn't. That actually, I believe, made me more depressed. Because now I'm like, what's my identity? Who the hell am I? If I'm not the person I left when I went in the Marines, then who the hell am I? Now I'm no, I drink every day. I'm depressed. And it started to really affect me. And to the point where I didn't know what my purpose in life was. And I'm 20 years old and I'm sitting in my bedroom. And I go into my stepfather's armoire and I grab his gun. And I sit it on my lap. And I'm contemplating using it. And I called my girlfriend at the time and I told her what's going on. I'm really depressed. I'm sad. I have my stepfather's gun on my lap. I don't know what to do. And within five minutes, she was at my house. She came in, she took the gun away and she talked to me. The very next day, I told my mom I was feeling very depressed. I never told her I grabbed the gun and sat it in my lap. I didn't want to scare her. I didn't want her to have me committed, but I did want to tell her I was feeling very depressed and sad. So she made an appointment for him to go to the doctor. I go to the doctors and they diagnose me with bipolar one manic depressant disorder. And they, and 95 PTSD was not acknowledged the way it is now. So I'm sure the government knew about it. I'm sure, I'm sure they, people knew about it, but they didn't diagnose anybody with PTSD. When they were done with you, you got, you, they gave you your DD 214 and you were done. And they said, have a nice day. So the dogs almost like they chewed you up and spit you out. Absolutely. Yeah. We're done using you. You're no longer good to us. See you later. I get home and I go to the doctors. I got bipolar one disorder. So now they want me to put me on medicine. I'm like, okay, whatever I need to do. Cause I'm feeling like crap. I just don't feel like myself. So they start putting me on medicine. The medicines weren't working. And this is because I wasn't telling them I was drinking every day and I had started smoking pot again. So 
I would go back in a month and they'd be like, how's the medicine working? I'm like, I don't know. I don't feel any different. It's not working. Okay, let's up the milligrams. Go back the next month. How's the medicine working? It's still not working. Okay, well, maybe they're not working. Let's put you on two other medicines. And this went on for about six months where they couldn't figure out why these medicines weren't working. The fact of the matter is I wasn't being truthful and honest with them that I had drugs and alcohol in my system. And no matter what medicines they were going to put me on, they weren't going to work. So within that six month period, I think they put me on 10, 10, 12 different medicines. They had me on lithium, like some crazy stuff for a while. And it just wasn't working. Well, I had gone to a party at my friend's house and I met my wife there, which I'd grown up with her. We were in the same neighborhood, but we never were boyfriend and girlfriend. We started dating. We moved in together. I got a job and we had our first daughter. And it seemed to be like I was mellowing out and I was balanced. I was at the, I was at the job and I, I stopped taking my medicine because as a typical person with bipolar, I feel good. I don't need this medicine anymore. So I'm just going to stop it. I'm just going to stop taking it. I've done that many times too with medicines. Yeah. And like you were saying there too, I can relate to being high all the time or drinking or whatever. And then on medications for whatever, my ADHD or other mental illnesses doesn't matter, but nothing was working until I actually got clean and sober though. And yeah, that, that's when everything that. really hit hard though. Once I got cleaned up, it's, oh. I got all these other feelings. I I have feelings. I have problems with myself. How are we going to fix these now? The medications start working if you actually take them properly, though, too. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they do. And now for the first time in my life, I'm taking these medicines. I'm on the lowest doses possible. I'm only on two medicines. And I feel the best I've ever felt in my life at 46 years old. And you know, this started at 20. So it's taken 26 years of medicine for it to finally kick in. And I would do the whole, I'd take it for six months, take two or three months off, take it for a year, stop taking it. And that was the last 20 to 20 plus years of my life. That's how I did the medicines. And I would lose jobs. And I would always equivalate it to, I just don't like it. I just don't fit in. Oh, that this person's mad at me. Or I call out and I get anxiety and panic attacks. And I just wouldn't go back. Since being out of the Marines at 20 years old, I've had 46 jobs. 46 employments. And that's all due to my bipolar, not being on the, not letting the medicine work because I was on drugs and alcohol. And in my, things were going pretty good. We had a first daughter, then we had our second daughter and uh, I was in my thirties and I lost, I think my 20th job. And my wife said, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know. I'm just lost. I really don't know what I want to do. And she said, what are you missing? I was like, I really miss competing. I really miss sports. And she's like, our bills are paid. She said, what do you think? And I was like, I really want to do MMA. I was like, it really intrigues me. I, I took Taekwondo and stuff in the Marines and wrestling in high school and stuff like that. So I was like, I really want to try it. She said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you one year to go train, see if you can get fights and see if you can actually do something with this. She said, but after that, you got to get a real job again and go back. So I took a year off. I went and trained. I ended up getting five fights. I was fighting at Atlantic City, Harris Casino in Philadelphia, down here in Baltimore, and things were going pretty good. I wasn't making a lot of money. I was making like 1500 bucks a fight, but it filled a void in me that I was missing, that competitive spirit, and it made me feel as if I was worth something. My last fight, I had torn my rotator cuff in three places, and I come out of the locker room, and I can't lift my arm. My wife said, what's wrong? I can't move my arm. She's like, are you kidding me? I was like, I can't lift it up. I was like, the trainer had to help me put my shirt off. She's like, oh my God, Tim. She's like, you're 36. She's like, you're done. 
She's that's it. She said, you've had a good ride. She's you can't do this anymore. So go to the doctor, have to have major surgery on my rotator cuff. I had the surgery and they put me on pain medicine. And first they started with the Percocets. And the Percocets would mess my stomach up for a while, make it all knots and just make me sick. And I would go back and be like, I'm still in pain. The Percocets are messing up my stomach. Okay, let's switch you to hydrocodone because that's a little less easier. That's a little less on your stomach and that should help. Well, I'd be on that for a couple months and I'd go back and they'd be like, how are you doing? I'm like, it's just not doing what the Percocets did. So, okay, we're going to put you on Oxycontins. And now we're going to up the milligrams, 10 milligrams, and see how that goes. Now we're talking, I'm 46. So 10 years ago, they would just give you the pain medicine. They weren't trying to get you off of it. Not like they are now. And it's not the way that they're actually trying to do things now is a lot better. But back then, all I had to do was go to my primary physician. I didn't even have to go back to the surgeon. I didn't have to go back to the hospital. I just went to my physician and say, I'm still hurting. And he would just write me another script. That went on for the next four years. And over that span of four years, not only did I have my rotator cuff, but I had two, two hernia operations, two neck surgeries, and I had major reconstructive surgery on my right arm. I tore all the ligaments in my arm. So I was on up to 20 milligrams of oxys a day. And like every good addict, I wasn't taking one every four hours. I was taking two and three every three hours. And I would get through my script within two weeks and I would make up some excuse like, oh, my elbow hit it and it fell into the toilet. I need another script. And they would just write me another. I was also drinking on top of this. So not only was I taking about eight, 10, 20 milligram oxys a day, I was drinking a 12 pack of beer every single day and smoking pot. So I had my trifecta. That's what I thought made me feel good. And I'm sitting on my bed one day. And I'm like, man, I, how did I get like this? I'm a freaking addict and I can't stop. And it scared me. I was like taking pain medicine like this and drinking. I'm going to die in my sleep. This is how people die. And you go to sleep and you just don't wake up. It's true. I, I went to bed like that some nights too, wondering if I was going to wake up. So some days I wouldn't go to bed because I didn't want to know if I was going to wake up or not. So I'd just try and stay up for days. Yeah. No, it really it legitimately scared the shit out of me. And I was sitting on my bed and I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to die this way, I'm going to do it. So I reach up on my dresser. I have 18 left in my bottle and I take all 18 and I drink a 12 pack of beer within three hours and I lay on the bed and I remember saying, please don't let me wake up because I can't take this pain anymore. I don't know how to stop and I don't want to live this way. And I fall asleep and I wake up the next day. And I didn't know then why I woke up. I do now, but I didn't know then. I go into the bathroom. I had my refill on the counter in the bathroom. I open up the bottle and I dumped all 30 of them down the toilet. And I remember looking in the mirror and I'm saying to myself, I don't care how bad this gets. I'm never taking pain medicine again. And the next 10 days of my life was pure hell. Oh, I bet. The dope sick. I was so sick beyond I, that's the sickest i've ever been in my entire life but every morning when i would wake up i would remember looking in the mirror and saying tim don't forget this feeling i never want to go through this again so it's been about seven years since i've taken any pain medicine and i was able to do that on my own but the drinking got out of control because now i'm missing a part of my my, my cocktail now i only have 
marijuana and alcohol. So I'm at my house one day and I'm like, man, I'm going to go for a ride because I'm just like, I'm down. I don't know how to stop drinking. I was proud of myself that I stopped pain medicine, but I couldn't stop drinking. And I get in my truck and I go for this ride down this reservoir. We have a beautiful reservoir. People go hiking and walk their dogs and stuff. And my senior year of high school, my best friend lost control of his vehicle and hit a tree at this reservoir and he, and he lost his life at the age of 18. And at this tree, they have a memorial. They have his picture there and you can write to him. You put flowers there. And I get out of my truck and I go up to the tree and I'm like, Bill, I need help, man. I don't know how to stop drinking. I'm an addict. I've lost umpteenth jobs. Me and my wife are fighting. I don't get along with my kids. People don't want to hang out with me. I don't know how to stop drinking. I just need a sign that I'm not alone, that, that I have a purpose in life, that everything's going to be okay because I'm truly lost and I don't know what to do. And I get back in my truck and I'm crying. And I go to leave the reservoir and instead of pulling off on the right-hand side where traffic is going, I pull over on the left-hand side facing oncoming traffic and I park because I'm crying. I can't drive. And I'm sitting there and about 10 minutes goes by and this car pulls up and we're, we're hood to hood. And I see the guy getting out of his truck and he opens the back door and grabs his dog and he's about to go walk over at the reservoir and walk his dog. And I'm looking at this guy. I'm looking at him. And it dawns on me. It was my best friend who passed away in 1996. It was his father. I hadn't seen him since 1996. And I get out of my truck. This is March 16, 2017. So 21 years later. And I get out and I say, Mr. Bill. And he looks at me and he's, Timmy, what's wrong? And I fall to the curb and I'm crying. I'm like, I'm an addict. I can't stop drinking. And I don't know what to do. I'm lost. And he walks over to me. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Timmy, I'm not even supposed to be here this morning. I'm supposed to be in South Carolina at a family reunion. I was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come down here at 10 o'clock this morning and walk the dog before I go down. He said, I truly believe I was here to see you today. And I said, I just stopped at Bill's tree and asked him for a sign that I was okay, that I wasn't alone. And we looked at each other and we hugged and we sat there and we talked for another 15 minutes. I still can't explain that experience. But my addictive personality then told me, I'm okay. Nothing's going to happen to me now. So I really don't have to stop drinking because I'm being watched. So for the next four years, I drank the most alcohol I have ever drank. Yeah, you bullshitted yourself. I absolutely did. I'm like, I'm being watched. Nothing's going to happen to me. You're bulletproof. Uh, that, that absolutely so the beer wasn't enough i had to look for that gap that the pain pills weren't there that was missing so i switched to whiskey and again my addictive personality stepped in and said don't buy a big bottle of whiskey because then you'll know exactly how much you're drinking just buy the little miniatures because you can drink them and throw them away and forget how much you're drinking so i started off getting four or five of them and a six pack of beer and then I'd get five or six and a 12 pack of beer. And then finally, I just said, you know what? Screw the beer. I'm just going to get whiskey. And I would go in and get a sleeve of whiskey, which is 10 miniatures in a pack. And I would go in and I'd get 10 of them. And I would finish all 10 of those miniatures before one o'clock in the afternoon. I'd get off of work about 3, 3.30 and I hit the liquor store again and get another 10. One day I took one of those miniatures and measured it out. One miniature is two and a half shots. So 
right before I went into rehab, that last year of my drinking, I was drinking 25 to 30 miniatures a day times two and a half. So I was upwards of 60 to almost 80 shots of whiskey every single day. What finally got me into rehab is crazy. I still haven't had a pancreas by then. I was in, a, I was a mess when I got to rehab and they did all the, uh, the doctors looked me over and did all the tests. What finally got me into rehab was I just got a brand new truck and I went to the liquor store to get my, my sleeve of whiskey, of fireball whiskey. And I hit something on the way coming home. I still, to this day, have no idea what I hit. I don't know if it was a parked car, a sign, something on the side of the road. But I do remember coming home and saying to my wife, I hit something, I'm going to bed. And I go to bed. Well, I wake up the next morning, like every good alcoholic, good morning. Hey, how you doing? I'm going to go to the store and go get water and milk. And she looks at me and she says, how are you going to do that? I'm like, in my truck in the driveway. She's like, go outside and look at your truck. So I go outside and my right front passenger tire is hanging off the rim. My side mirror is completely gone. And I'm just standing there looking at my truck and she's, and she pops her head out the door. She's, you don't know what you hit last night, do you? I said, I had no idea. She said, you could have killed yourself or killed somebody else. You can't stay here anymore. You have to go figure this out, but I don't want you here anymore. So I go in the house and pack my stuff up and I call my buddy. I'm like, Hey man, I just got kicked out of my way, uh, out of my house. Is there any way I can come to your house for a couple of days? Let things blow over. And then in a couple of days I can go back because it's not that big of a deal. And uh, he's sure, man, come on over. So I go to his house and his solution was, you just got kicked out of your house, man. You can't go home. We might as well go to the bar. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, because now I have a reason to drink. My wife just kicked me out of the house. I'm justifying. Now I have an actual reason to go drink. So we go to the bar. We drank. I get drunk. As I'm leaving the bar, less than 24 hours later, I rear end somebody at the red light. And I get out and I'm looking at the guy and he had a tow hitch on the back of his truck and his truck was actually fine. But my whole front bumper was V'd in. And I look at the guy, I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm okay. I was like, your truck's okay. You're okay. I'm out of here. And I slapped him on his back and I got my truck and I took off. I knew I was going to jail if the cops were coming. I was drunk. And I get back to my buddy's house and I'm like, dude, I can't stay here. I got to go be by myself and just think about some stuff. Got my stuff and I left. Stop at the liquor store, get 10 more miniatures. And I go and sit at a parking ride where people park their cars and catch the train to go to work for the day. And I get there and I turn off my phone. At this point, I didn't want to talk to nobody. I didn't want the phone to ring. I didn't want nobody to know where I was. I just wanted to be alone. I wanted to drink myself till I passed out and pretty much have a pity party about how bad my life had become. So for the next 48 hours, I sat in my truck and drank and passed out and drank and passed out and listen to sad ass music and just replayed the last 22 years of my life of how I've let everybody down and how I couldn't get my bipolar in order and I couldn't keep jobs and how the alcoholism just taken over my what life. What was it like dealing with your bipolar through life though, Tim? You know what? It's funny because in the Marines, I didn't know I had bipolar, but it actually helped me because there was no off time in the Marines. You were on hundred percent of the time, 12, 16 hours a day. So How I did it help you. It, it excelled me. I graduated top of my class. I was a company guide. I was always a, a squad team leader. I was always one of the first guys to finish the calisthenic course or the obstacle course. I was really motivated and it actually helped me in boxing. 
That's how I got to the Golden Gloves and Junior Olympics because when I trained harder and longer than everybody else. And I, I didn't realize that until I got older and up into my 30s and 40s that it was the manic part of my bipolar that just wouldn't shut off. I was go. And what types of things were you doing like with your manic states and stuff like that? Obviously, lots of drinking, but I, lots of drinking, lots of sex with girls. I was trying to fill the void with that. I had a lot of girlfriends and multiple girlfriends. I would never stay with one girl. I would go for days without sleeping. Sometimes my mind would race about every single thing that I had went through, what I had to do, which would bring on panic attacks and anxiety. I would eat to excess or sometimes I wouldn't eat at all. It would really mess with me. My emotions, I never was the kind of guy that had emotions that went up and down. I was either at the top of the roller coaster or I was at the bottom of the valley. It was either a hundred miles an hour or zero miles an hour. There was no middle ground for me. I just thought that's how I was. I was a very emotional person. I just thought when I went to do something, I was dedicated, I was committed, but it was a, it was more of an obsession. It was more of a compulsion that I didn't realize until I started to get sober and go to counseling and go to rehab and stuff like that. I just thought that's how I was. Now I did growing up, always ask my mom, why am I different than everybody else? Why do I excel at things? She's, oh, you're just, you're just very headstrong. You let, you know, you're goal oriented. You know what you want to do. And nobody can stop you. She just thought that's how I was. I said, why do I get sad? She, oh, you're very in touch with your emotions. She didn't want to ever admit that maybe I had a mental illness. We're talking late eighties, early nineties. So that really. It was very taboo probably back then. Her generation didn't believe in mental illness. She grew up in the forties, fifties, and sixties. That was, I know. First of all, you don't talk about your family problems, much less a mental illness. You know what I mean? So that was nothing on her mind until I get back from the Marines and she could see that something was wrong with me. That's when she was like, okay, you need to go see a doctor because you're scared. I'm grateful today that people are able to talk about it. We're able to have these types of conversations because 30, 30 some odd years ago, no one would be having conversations like this for the most part at all. Very rarely. Very rare. You know, more that I got that I've been getting sober and the more that me and my mom have been being reconnected because for a very long time, our relationship was, it was shitty. Every time I talked to her on the phone, I would yell and scream at her, hang up on her. I didn't want to be around her. I didn't want to go visit her for holidays. I wanted to seclude myself and drink and get high and not speak to the outside world. But as I got sober and as I started doing the steps and having a sponsor and really working on myself mentally. My mom told me things about her two uncles growing up all had mental illness. My one aunt had schizophrenia. My mom's father, who I'd never met, he died before I, I was born. He was an alcoholic and he had multiple personality disorder. He molested all of his children and then he shot himself at the age of 55. My other aunt, she had ADHD and something else. No, none of this stuff that was ever discussed in our family until... I started to get sober and started asking questions. You know, the types of things I find should be shared though. Like I feel like so many families have these dynamics where they don't share everything. And these are things you could learn about yourself. That's where I believe in sharing things, not holding all this shit in from family members, especially because it starts to really sink in. Hey, this is maybe the reason the way I am. It clearly is hereditary in your family. 
Yes. Yeah. By knowing this, I don't feel as if there's something wrong with me anymore. You know what I mean? I feel as if it definitely is hereditary and it's in my family gene, but there's a way to take care of it now. I just felt as if, man, there's something wrong with me and this medicine isn't working. What? I almost felt insane. I almost felt like I was crazy. Nothing's working. What the hell is wrong with me? Why am I so different than everybody else? When the fact of the matter is I really wasn't that much different than people in my family. I just never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, go, going back. So I spent two days in my truck and I turned my phone on at seven after 10, March 5th, 2020. And at nine after 10, two minutes after having my phone off for 48 minutes, I get a phone call. And it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. And he's lodging. What the F are you doing? And I'm like, I'm in my truck, man. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm drunk. And he says, good. That's what you need. He's, I just got off the phone with your mom and your wife. I have a plane ticket set for you this evening. You're going to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers in West Palm Beach, Florida, and you're going to go get help. And I was like, okay, man. Yeah, okay. I will. Very unsure of myself. And I hung up the phone. And uh, my wife calls 10 minutes later. She says, hey, I got off the phone with Brandon. I need you to come home, pack your bags, take a shower, try to eat something and maybe take a little nap because I had about five hours before the plane left. I'm like, okay. So I get home, I take a shower. I couldn't, I, I'm in full panic mode, anxiety mode, because now I got to go to rehab in a whole nother state. How long do I have to go? 30, 60, 90 days. I don't know. My mind's racing. I couldn't eat because I've been drinking for the last 48 hours and I'm sitting on my bed and I'm like, man, is this really going to happen? Do I really have to go to rehab? Is my life this effed up? And my addiction grabs me by the hand. It walks me into the basement of my home and it throws a rope around my neck and stands me on a bucket and tells me to end the pain that I can't do it. And about three to four minutes goes by and my wife realizes I'm not in the bedroom. And she comes down the steps in the basement of her home and she sees me in the corner of the basement, standing on a bucket with a rope around my neck, hysterically crying. She says, what are you doing? I said, I can't do it. I just want the pain to stop. I can't do this. And she looks at me and she says, Tim, do you know what this will do to your children? Please get down and go get the help that you need. Everything is going to be all right. Just please get down. So about a minute goes by. I take the rope off my neck. And I fall to the floor and I cry for about 10 minutes. I go upstairs and I call my buddy. I'm like, Brandon, I got to go, man. I was like, this is going to kill me. I have to go. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security because I want to make sure you're getting on the plane. I said, okay. And he hangs up. My mom drives me to the airport and I get past security and I call him. I say, I'm past security. And he says, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're about to get back everything that you've lost times 10. And he hangs up the phone. As I go to sit down in the seat, waiting for them to call us to board the plane. As I sit down, I get this overwhelming feeling of hope that comes over my entire body. It was a warm blanket feeling that I've never felt in my entire life. My worry went away. My panic went away. My depression, my anxiety went away. And something, I don't know what, but something tells me everything's going to be all right. And it was a calm voice that I've never heard before in my life. At that moment, I've realized at 44 years old 
that I was going to get the help that I finally needed. I got to rehab and I went both feet in. I didn't miss any meetings. I journaled. I shared. I went to extra meetings for very and first responders. I started a morning meeting group where we read daily reflections, a word for the day like hope or perseverance or uh, consistency. And that started our day. And I started working out with a personal trainer that they had come in Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I changed my diet. I completely went full addict mode into my recovery because like most do, I did the same thing with my recovery first and and like anything in life, my podcasting work, whatever it is I do, I go full manic half the time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? I I told myself, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it a hundred percent. I'm not going to half-ass this because to me, this is life and death. Well, we were always given 110 out on the streets. Absolutely. And I did whatever I had to do to get that last 10, 12 bucks to go get my liquor or whatever I had to do to go get some pot or some pain pills. If I ran out and the doctors wouldn't give them to me, I was very deceptive and manipulating and I persevered no matter what to get what I need. Something happened to me in that airport. I don't know if it was the psychic change, but something finally clicked in my head after 27 years of mental illness and addiction that finally said, enough is enough. I'm ready. I finally told myself that I was ready to get the help needed. And I wanted to do everything mentally, spiritually, and physically properly. I didn't want to leave anything out because I'm, I truly believe you have to have a balance in your recovery. When I got to, when I got to the rehab and they took all my tests, my liver and my kidneys were four times what they should have been. The doctor, my high, my blood pressure was 167 over 142 when I walked in that door and the doctor looks at me and goes, you're on the verge of having a stroke. He's, if you were to drink like this for the next year and a half, you would not make it to 47 years old. So I started not to believe in coincidences. I, I now believe that everything happens in the time that's needed to happen. I was there on March 5th, 2020 at that exact time I was needed to save my life. And since then, I have taken this the most seriously I've ever taken anything in my life. I'm truly grateful to be alive. I'm truly grateful. And when I came home, my, my kids would scatter and my wife would leave the, ha- leave the room and go in a room and shut the door like roaches with the lights coming on. And when I was in my addiction, I was like, cool, nobody's going to mess with me. I can sit here and drink and watch TV. And I got my own time. I didn't realize that they were scared of me. They didn't know what dad was walking in that front door. She didn't know what husband she had to deal with. So they would just leave, let me be, because I was- And you can't blame them though either. No. Now, thank God I was never physically abusive, but I sure as shit was verbally abusive. I said the nastiest things to the people I love the most, and I would wake up the next day not remembering a damn word that I said. That's what we always did. It was always to the ones we loved the most, the ones that are closest to us that we always hurt the most too, that were our punching bags. Absolutely. And my, my wife would say, you never let the wounds heal. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, you said the nastiest things to me last night. And now you just want to act like nothing happens. She goes, and then tonight you're going to do it the same. She says, so as that wound heals, all you do is rip it back open. And now it's 10 times. She goes, and I have to live with this. You don't remember what you say to me. She goes, but I will always remember the words that came out of your mouth. And that hit me really hard when I, when my first month of sobriety, and I started to realize, wow, I was I really was a piece of shit. Like I I treated everybody like they were trash and I was the only person that mattered. 
I was selfish. I was the only person that mattered. My addiction was the only thing that mattered. And that's all I cared about. My, my oldest is 24 years old. And when I first came home from rehab, I was like, look at me. I did 30, 32 days, man. I'm clean and sober. I'm working the steps. I found a home group. I'm going to meetings. Why isn't my daughter talking to me? And my wife looks at me and she's him. You drank for 27 years and did drugs. She's, your daughter's 24. She's seen everything. She has seen the best and the worst of her father. She's give it time. So third month come around, sixth month come around. My daughter's still not talking to me. And she lives upstairs in my house. She would just walk right in and go right up the steps. Finally, the ninth month of my recovery, I just randomly get a text message and it's my daughter. And she says, dad, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. Thank you for giving me the time to heal because I knew you were healing too. And I haven't told you this. She said, but I love you. And I'm truly proud to have my dad back. At that time, it was the biggest gift that sobriety has given me. It still is one of the biggest gifts that sobriety has given me. Best feeling ever, man. I remember like getting texts like that from my son too, or the Father's Day card I got this year. Thanks for being the dad you are to Madison and I. That's his sister, my daughter. And just those types of things. He's just proud of me. He even goes out of his way. Like this year was an awesome gift. He thought of the colors, but he thought it was a great idea. He got my fiance and I, his mother and I split years ago because of my own stupidity, my own shenanigans and shit like that. The same with her mother. Same thing. You know what I mean? Enough was enough. I wouldn't show up at home on the weekends at all. He finally just, I there's literally a bag packed for me when I got home that one Saturday morning. Here you go wasn't letting in she just put the garbage bag out and said have a good day wow she packed all my shit for me I, you know what i mean but this year like the gift he got he the, the thoughtfulness of him I, he'll never grow up like me see way past he's just way better than me already at 15 or going 15 like nobody he got a gift he, he thought it was the best gift ever he got the date that me and my fiance started dating so he got that date the date that i had asked her out he put that on the side of the baseball cap that i got very cool yeah yeah so just that's the thoughtfulness of him, but he's just grateful to have his dad back in his life. Yes. Not that I wasn't there physically, mentally, I wasn't there for basically his whole life as well, up until three years ago. Yeah. We were there, but we weren't present. Not at all. Not at all. Our body was there, our mind was someplace else. And then I asked my wife, I even asked my wife, I said, why didn't you leave me? I was like, because I put her through some shit. I had an affair. I put her through some, a lot of stuff. And she's like, because I always knew that you could be the man that I once married. She's, and I believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself and to have somebody that still believes in me when I didn't believe in myself, to have somebody that, that always had my back and she still has my back. We've been together since 1996 and I'm grateful that I have my family. So many people lose everything. I am I'm grateful for mine too. Like I was in in and out of the rooms, whatever. I don't go to meetings and stuff like that anymore, but I do other things to keep have my sobriety, keep my recovery. That's just me. There's no linear path to your recovery, man. Everyone's right. is different. Right. But like right. I relapsed the first year I was dating my fiance. She could have left. The red flags were all there. Like, get the fuck out of here. You know what I mean? And but she stuck it out. She see me at my worst, dope sick, everything. Coming off everything for months. Going coming off the antipsychotic pills I was on. Just wow. everything. And, but she stuck it out like every day. She's in, not many people would. She's a strong, strong woman to stick out what she has. Even in anger still gets the best of me some days. I won't deny it.
Yeah. Uh, I, 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 some character defects that I really got to work on and anger is one of them. You know what? To be quite honest with you, I've, I haven't been angry since I've gotten sober. I've, I became a really peaceful person. I didn't, I don't like the way that makes me feel anymore. That, that energy that goes through that anger that. No, I don't like it either. It's more, yeah. like, I got to remember to yeah think before I react, think before I do. And sometimes yes. I don't, I, my ADHD, just my impulsive thinking. All right. That's an idea. Let's do this. <laughs> fucking, let's do that. Or <laughs> I catch myself. I do, you know, because I work the steps of recovery. I talk to myself. I do the think. I think before I speak. I think before I say something. And I think, how is this going to affect somebody? And I have some tools now that I've never had before that help. I'm learning patience. I never had patience. I was, as soon as something pissed me off, I, I would start yelling. My wife said the other day, it might've been two months ago, we were at a cookout and one of her friends says, how's everything at home? She's it's so peaceful. She's, I can't get him to argue about anything. She's, he's just, okay, we'll deal with it. Everything's going to be okay. She's, he's just very calm. She's, I call him Buddha sometimes because he just, I'll say something and he'll come up with this saying, or he'll say, we just have to work it out. And so I'm learning to be a completely different person than who I used to be. I was a very aggressive, very violent person when I was not in the house. I got in a lot of fights. And I didn't care if you had a gun pulled on. I was like, let fucking go. And that's just how I was. I have too much to lose now. And I realized that. I actually have the presence of mind to know that my life is, has a meaning now. Where I didn't know what, it, what my purpose was. I truly believe my purpose now is to share my story. It's to, it's to share it to people who believe that nobody else could possibly know their pain. Nobody else possibly could go through what they're going through. And I need them to know that they're not alone. There are so many of us that deal with mental illness and addiction. And the more that you do these podcasts, the more that I share, the more people we could reach, the less people have to suffer with mental illness and possibly lose their life to suicide or addiction. Amen to that, man. Amen to that. It's so true. And I appreciate you saying that. It's all about, like you just said, sharing your story to help. If it only helps one person, you've done your job. You know, the next person, it's all about going out and being kind, showing compassion to that homeless person, that man struggling on the street down where I live, the city I live in. It's everywhere, man. It's a huge epidemic everywhere with the drugs yeah. and the mental illness right now. You know what I mean? And, you know, it, it boggles my mind that they had money, though, to put another uh, brand new $75 million freaking main library downtown here. But where the heck? It just boggles my mind sometimes. Just <laughs> mind blowing. So, but you know what? There is steps going into place. They are building a new mental health facility here for the youth, which is nice okay. to see. That's good. They've just bought two motels. That's going to be a new shelter for lower income, geared to income housing and stuff like that, or a homeless shelter and stuff like that. They bought two old motels that are gutting them and changing them over to that. So there is, when the mayor in the city here is actually awesome. He's willing to listen. He's willing to work with people, which I like to see. So he's always out in the public asking questions, talking with people. He'll mingle and have a drink with you at the bar. He's just that type of guy. And it's nice to see that. You don't see that with every face of the city. 
either. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that's really good. And my other daughter's 14 and my youngest is 11. And I'm able to tell them now, and they're able to see the podcast that I do, the interviews that I do, the li- the lives that I do on Instagram or Facebook and people that message back, the messages that these people send me. And it's humbling. It is so humbling to hear that my story or my words can help somebody. And it's not just like in a meeting where it's the same 30 people, Switzerland, United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, all across the United States. I get these messages. Thank you for telling me not to give up. Don't give up hope. You know, everything's going to be okay. Believe in yourself. Little tiny bits. It may not be the whole me. It may not be the whole podcast, but it might be a minute or a two, or just a word that's in that podcast that helps them and it clicks in their brain. And they're like, you know what? I can do this. I I can be strong. I can make a change. The very first podcast I did, I had two months sober. And I was like, I I would like to share my story. So I did. And four days later, I get this phone call. And he's just Tim. And I'm like, yeah, who's this? He's like, it's a Tony. I'm like, "I, I don't know who it is, man. I'm sorry. And he's, I served with you in the Marine Corps in 1995. And I'm like, oh my God, man, what's going on? And he's, I'm not doing good. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, man, I've been addicted to pain pills for 18 years. He's in the other day, I listened to your podcast and he goes, and you were talking about hope and not giving up. And he's like, I just wanted you to know I'm four days sober after 18 years. And he said, and I was listening to that podcast that, that gives me the strength to, to get my life together. And I'm like, man, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for this message. I'm like tearing up hearing, hearing this story until we talk for 20 minutes and I hang up the phone. And I've been in touch with him every other week since that. He just got 185 days sober or something after 18 years of pain medicine. And he says his life has changed. Him and his wife still have problems. They're working it, they're working it out. But he said his life is so much better than what it used to be. And he thanks me for going on and sharing my story. That's amazing, man. That's amazing to hear those things. And you get those messages from uh, people randomly reach out to me. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel whole. You know, you're doing something right. Just sharing that story and giving that someone that little glimpse of hope. Yeah. And it's not an ego thing. It's like, uh, if you actually feel good about yourself and there's no, you can let it be an ego thing, but you don't want it to be that though. You know what I mean? You don't take it the wrong way and make it an ego thing either. You shouldn't, but yeah, some people do for (laughs) me. It just, it just tells me that I'm doing what I should be doing. This is my purpose now. I truly believe is to share to as many people as possible in hopes that they know that they're not alone. They can recover and they can live the life that they've always wanted. And it gives me a purpose in life and no amount of money can give me that feeling of actually feeling like I'm worth something now. When for so long, I just felt like a piece of shit and my wife and kids were better off without, mom was better off without me and I didn't want to live. I actually feel as if I have a reason to live now. And when I first got sober, I did the, man, why did I have to go through 27 years of hell? It's It's not, it didn't happen to me. It was happening for me. I had to experience that in order to be able to share my experience of strength, courage, and hope to others who were suffering. I wouldn't have been able to be authentic. I wouldn't have been able to tell the truth unless I had to experience that. 
And now I'm actually grateful that it didn't happen to me. It happened for me. And I changed my perception on everything. I changed my perspective. And by doing that, it has made me a completely different human being, a better husband, friend, father, and son all the way around. And I look at life a whole, I used to be a half glass empty. Now I look at it and man, there's something in that glass. So there's something there. I can do something with it. Where's the rest of it? You know what I mean? Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about boxing for a few minutes, man. Yeah. Being a gold gloves boxer must've been a tough feat to get there. Did you happen to face off with any famous fighters? A couple of local guys that, that ended up being like Maryland champions and stuff down here, but nobody completely famous. We're talking 88 to 92. So seventh, eighth, ninth, and 10th grade. Where I, I come from, though, the best of the best come from my city, man, up here in Canada. Lennox Lewis grew up where I came from, so. He's definitely one of the best, <laughs> absolutely. And we have a beast now down from Baltimore, Maryland, called Gervonta Tank Davis. I, I've heard of him. I was watching him the last fight there. I caught a little bit of it or whatever. Yeah, he, I actually trained at one of the gyms that he was at before he got famous. He was just another guy. He was an up-and-comer. I spoke to him a couple times. Nothing big, nothing like he knew my name or nothing like that. Just gym conversations. Growing up, wanting to do that, at that time, I, I got into a lot of fights in middle school and high school. And I remember walking down the hall in high school. Was it because of boxing or is that when you got into boxing? That's how I got into it. I'm walking down the hallway in high school and this guy, I know, come by and he's got a boxing shirt on. I'm like... That's a cool shirt, man. Where'd you get it? He's like, oh man, a boxing gym opened up. He's like, I've been going there for two months. He's like, you should come down. We can punch people in the face and not get in trouble for it. And I'm like, oh, no shit. Count me in, man. And he gave me the address and I go to the gym. I'm 13 years old and I pick it up real fast. And, and that's how I've always been with things. I'm a very talented person as far as athletics. I pick things up extremely fast. But that was also a curse because I, it made me not work as hard as everybody else because I could just pick it up and do it. Where other people's had to go for months and really train their ass off to get to where I was, I was just like, oh, it just comes naturally to me. No, not a big deal. I only train for two hours today. You guys can sit here for four. I don't need another two hours. So why didn't you go anywhere with the boxing then pursued any further after the gold glove stuff? So... After the Golden Gloves, that next six months, I actually ranked in Maryland in Maryland State to be to qualify for the Junior Olympics. So that's how I got into the Junior Olympics. They take all the Golden Gloves from all the states, and then all the Golden Gloves guys fight, and the top three people get chosen for the Junior Olympics. Which is, if you win the Junior Olympics, that next year you're, you qualify for the actual Olympics. So I made it to, and I got third place in the Junior Olympics. I quit. After I got third place, I told myself I wasn't good enough. I didn't come in first. You became a sore loser? Yep. I didn't want to do it anymore. I put in all this effort for four years and I came in third place. Not realizing that all these people would have changed their, or would have changed with me in a heartbeat. I took it as, well, screw this. I'm giving up. I, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's exactly what I did with skateboarding as well. I just quit. I just didn't want to do it anymore after being sponsored by independent trucks, Thrasher Magazine, a bunch of local places, came with Bucky Lasik and Brandy Novak. I was just like, I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. And I just quit. And I did that with a lot of things. I did it all throughout my adulthood, just quitting jobs. I would just get- Seems like it was a common theme. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I would just quit. And now I've realized that, that just quitting throughout my life also affected me mentally because I would tell myself, I'm just going to quit anyway. So why even give it a shot? Why even put in the effort? I'm just going to quit. And that really made me depressed a lot of times. You know, now that I'm sober, I got 16 months as of Tuesday. And I love myself now. And I realize that I have had mental illness, but I never treated it properly. For the first time in my life, I'm on the proper medicine that works. It actually works that there's no drugs and alcohol in my system. Imagine that. And I'm a more balanced person and I'm able to accept my past. I'm able to be like, you know what? It's okay. For me, it's an experience. And I can't dwell on that now. If I dwell on the past and all the things that I, that I quit or all the things that I let go of, I don't think I'd be able to stay sober. I had a true shot at becoming a professional skateboarder and being in magazines and traveling and making money. And I just quit. I just said, you know what? I'm not doing it anymore. And I remember feeling like I lost something. Like for the first couple months and I wouldn't pick up my skateboard and my mom would be like, Tim. You lived, you ate, you slept skateboarding, and now you just quit? She's like, well, well, why? I'm like, I just don't want to do it anymore. And this is at 15, and those red flags never went up for my mom then either. I'm in high school and still didn't register that maybe there was something wrong before I even went to the Marine Corps. So I, I quit, and then that next year is when I started drinking and doing drugs. And now that I look back at it, maybe that is also a part of the reason I started drinking and doing drugs. I wasn't myself. And I wasn't happy with myself and I wasn't happy with the choices and I was beating myself up and I wanted to escape those emotions because just, I didn't want to feel that way. Any, I didn't want to feel like a loser. I didn't want to feel like a quitter. And I just wanted to be happy and go lucky and forget about everything. And the drugs and the alcohol did that for me. That's amazing to see where you've come to today though. Pretty cool that we're friends with Bucky Lastic and Brandon Novak. That's your claim to fame. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I was in a skateboard video. I was in when Alien Workshop first came out. Oh, nice. Yeah. I have a little five-minute clip in there. I have it on VHS downstairs in my basement still. <laughs> you should convert it. DVD. Yeah, well, I know. And I just went through all my tapes the other day. I got, I still got all the Bones Brigade videos, Alien Workshop, all these cool. I got about 15 videos back then and I still have them. And I have an actual VHS tape. That's and awesome. I, I threw in the search for Animal Chin last month and I sat there and watched the whole thing. And I was like, you know what? Man, I love this as a kid. I'm watching it now as 46 years old. And I'm like, this is funny because never thought of getting a skateboard again and trying it. I have one at the house, actually. Well, I, I used to skateboard like most teen guys. Not everyone, but I had a whole crew of guys that did it too up here. Lots of people. I have a buddy that still does it to this day. He just does lots of street boarding and stuff of like that. And he's in magazines all the time. Videos out in Vancouver now. Awesome. But yeah, he's almost 40 himself. But he's still going strong, man. <laughs> yeah. I, he left I, I, after high school and went out to He's lived in Montreal, over in, over in Europe, down in the States, everywhere. Yeah, I have a Tony Hawk downstairs. I've had it for about five years, and every once in a while, I'll go out in the driveway, I'll do some kickflips, I'll do some ollie nollies, uh, I'll do some ollie impossibles, and then my wife comes out, she says, what are you doing? I'm, I'm just skateboarding, you're going to fall and break something. You're, 40, you're 45 years old. 
you're going to break your elbow. You're going to break your ankle. She's like, knock it off. Just get in the house. And so I get about 15, 20 minutes in before she'll come out and yell at me. She's saying, you're not 15, 20 years old. But um, both of my girls got skateboards and I'll take them across at the uh, school across the street and let them skate in the basketball court. And they'll, when my mom, when she's out there, mom's not here. Can you do some cool things? And I'll do a couple of tricks or whatever. Don't tell your mom, she'll yell at me. So I do miss it, but I'm a lot bigger now than I was at 15 years old. I was 140 pounds dripping wet. Now I'm like, oh, I'm 208 pounds now. And I'm competing for my first bodybuilding show in November. That's amazing, man. Another yeah, I look pretty awesome on a skateboard. Before we got a little bit more time here, but what feeling have you been experiencing the most lately, Tim? Gratitude. Nice. I love gratitude, man. Every um, morning, every night, I write in a gratitude journal. I do. And I never, I'm not a religious person. I'm very spiritual. I truly believe that there's something other than us. I don't call it Jesus. I don't call it Allah, Buddha. I don't know what's out there, but I do know that experience that happened to me and that wasn't a coincidence. It came from someplace else. That experience I had in the airport before I went to rehab came from someplace else and I cannot ignore that. So for me, having faith in something other than myself has really helped me stay grounded. I do pray at night and I don't pray for myself. I pray, watch over my family, keep them happy, healthy, safe. Watch over my cousin, help him beat his addiction. Watch over my friend, help him to stay sober. Watch over my mother, keep her healthy. She's getting older. I pray for other people. And I also pray to help me reach as many people as possible who are suffering with mental illness and addiction in hopes that they're not alone. So my, my, my prayers aren't for myself. I pray for other things and other people. And I, and then I thank him for another day of sobriety. I thank for a second chance of life. And I thank him for the opportunity to be a better father, husband, and friend. And it keeps having faith now has really helped me where before I didn't believe in anything. I believe that what, if I'm suffering so bad, if children are dying of cancer and starvation, there can't not possibly be a God out there. And I was lost and I was alone and I had no feeling of purpose. Now that I have some faith and I believe that things happen for us, not to us, and my perspective has changed that I look at things a little bit differently now. And I'm honestly lucky to be alive. I'm grateful to wake up every day. I'm grateful to still have a job. I still have my family, my wife, and I'm grateful to have been able to mend some relationships that I completely burnt in the past. I still have lost friends that want nothing to do with me and rightfully, and that's okay because maybe they're just not part of this new journey. That, that was an old chapter in my book. I'm on a new chapter. Maybe they're just not part of my story anymore but they were a part of my life at one point. And I have to look at that as they were there at that time and I'm a new person and I'm moving forward. Nice. That's amazing, man. I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm happy to have had you on the show today to share your story, share, share your experience, your strength, your hope with others in hopes of helping, you know, one person today here again, thank you for coming on the show. But before we go, can you please, let everyone know where they can find you if they want to reach out to you on social media. Where's the best place to find you, man? The best place to find me is on Instagram. It's at T Lodgen, L-O-D-G-E-N. I post all my podcasts, all anything recovery or fitness based. I have completely transformed my body 
from uh, I was 25 pounds overweight when I went into rehab and, and now I'm the best shape of my life at 46 years old and it's all due to diet fitness uh, so I share all that journey as well I my messages are completely open if anybody ever has a question or if they just want to talk to me and get some feedback I answer every single message that comes through my DM I don't shy anybody away and I'm here to help anybody if they ever need to talk to somebody just hit my Instagram at T Lodgin and I'll be there to help you. Thank you again for coming on the show, man. I truly appreciate it a lot. I took so much away from today's show. But one thing most oh. gratitude, man. Have gratitude for others. Have gratitude for yourself as well. Be grateful that you're on this earth today, everyone. Look yourself in the mirror and tell yourself you're worth it because you are. Absolutely, 100%. Thank you so much for having me on, Chris. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure having you on, man. What an awesome chat it was. Thanks again, buddy. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Have a good evening. You too.